0: Listening to the brand new episode of In Love with the Process. I'm your host Mike Petchi. How are you guys? What is happening? What is new? Uh, life has been pretty good here for us in Los Angeles. Uh, things are lifted. We're uh, while recording this thing. What is it? The 14th. Supposedly tomorrow is when uh, they lift the mask uh, protocol, so we'll be able to have greater access to going to to bars, to being inside places without wearing a mask. I cannot fucking wait for that. We're now at the point where after being vaccinated, I feel like it's time that I don't have to breathe in my bad breath all day, right? I think we're finally there. I don't have to be out of breath walking up a set of stairs because I'm just breathing in carbon monoxide the whole time. And I am not an anti-masker. Let me just say that right off the bat. I believe in it. I believe in being cautious and courteous to those around you. But if we're getting to the point uh, where everybody is getting vaccinated, uh, where we're getting sort of that herd immunity, then yes, please, can we can we get rid of them? <sighs> you know, you guys feel the same way? Um, I was ex- extremely excited this week because I got to go to my favorite cinema. I headed over to the Alamo Draft House in downtown Los Angeles. Um, it's one of the newer Alamos. I, I think it opened up maybe a year or two years before COVID. And when we first moved here before the fucking lockdown, uh, Gina and I would go there all the time. We loved it. There's a great bar there. They have a uh, great merch. Uh, they have a vinyl section of all the Mondo stuff. Um, and so uh, it was kind of bummed out because it was a short, brief period of time where uh, they were filing chapter 11. And um, I was concerned. I'm like, fuck. It's like the Alamo going down. It's like the best place. Uh, But they didn't. They made it. They survived. I think they got some new investors. uh, And the theater is back open and well. Uh, Limited capacity right now. Um, But uh, I had to jump online and try to get tickets immediately. Um, And what I wanted to do initially uh, was see the film for today's guest. Um, But the tickets were sold out. Uh, So I ended up doing my second choice which was the new conjuring movie so conjuring 3 the devil made me do it now i saw the trailer for this movie on my computer here at home and i was like yeah okay whatever right watched it on my phone like an asshole watched a little trailer on my phone and went yeah okay whatever looks cool but we went and saw it in the theater and it was great that movie requires a theater experience. I know it is being released at the same time on HBO Max, doing the whole release in the at home and at the theaters. It is a completely different experience in the theater. And I know you guys are hearing that a lot lately from me, and I don't know how to vocalize it in a way that is equivalent to seeing it in the theater. There is just something transformative about sitting in front of a screen and having that screen fill your entire field of view. Uh, Especially if you go to the Alamo, they have strict rules. Uh, I love their fucking rules there where you have to be quiet and you can actually rat on the person that's being a piece of shit behind you by just writing it down on a piece of paper and putting it there and they'll eject that person. So there's this sense of fear (laughs) that runs through the audience where it's like, I don't want to be the asshole that gets ejected, so I'm not going to do some shitty stuff. So anybody who's like, I don't go to the theater because I don't like having to deal with the person that's talking behind me, go to the Alamo. They have figured out a great system a friendly system that makes sure that everybody polices themselves. It's really, really great. Um, so seeing it in the cinema with the sound blaring at you, right? All those visual kills, those hits and looking at it on the big screen and not being able to look at your phone, not being able to be distracted by anything else, it was a fucking great experience. Now, do I think it's the best Conjuring movie? No, I don't. I still think the first one's probably the best but is it a great theater experience yes and i know that so many people out there are like look mike we want to go to the movies but there aren't a lot of movies out right now what do we go see do i go see fast and furious 9 uh you could i'm probably going to see that with lance we'll probably go see that um but um no uh go see this one i would say go see the new conjuring movie it's a lot of fun if you're into jump scare stuff if you're into Uh, Possessions and demon possessions and they do a really good job with this movie They blow it open a bit and the the sets pieces are a bit bigger and the production design looks a lot cooler for this one I think it was the guy who did uh, La Llorona. I think it was the director that did that did this So James Wan didn't direct this one. I think he just produced it Um, But anyway, like I said, I initially was going to the cinema to see a film that I saw a trailer for that kind of blew my mind there's a, it's, it's one of those things where like, you see a trailer for an independent film that you know is kind of going to change the rules of the game a little bit. It's like when I saw the trailer for Beyond the Black Rainbow, right? At that moment, a lot of game changing that was happening there. Same thing for the follow-up with Mandy. A lot of stuff in there. You know, it's like, this is a movie that is going to influence filmmakers. Well, I saw this trailer for a movie called Censor, and I felt the same way. There's such a great uh, original visual aesthetic that she has for this film. Um, And uh, I love the sort of throwback to like old hammer horror that it feels like it has. So I'm very fascinated with that stuff too. Um, And so I did a little research and I found the director of it. Um, And it turns out that the director and I share the same agent. We both are repped by the same guy over at uta which i was like okay small world that makes sense um and then um reached in and, and did some research and looked at her work and i was like oh she's been working in music videos and short films for a long period of time and this is her first feature sounds like my path i really want to get her on the show and pop her with some questions before i do my first film because maybe she's been through the stuff that i can learn from that will make my life a little bit easier Make my film a bit better if I understand what she's been through. And so I reached out and got in touch with Prano Bailey Bond. Now, Prano is uh, very gracious. She was very gracious to say yes to be on the show. Um, and uh, she spends uh, a good amount of time with us this morning as we go through our Zencaster issues. <sighs> That's how I feel about you guys, you know? Your shit always goes down right in the middle of a great fucking statement, right in the middle of a great vibe, you know? I gotta get, I can't wait. Once this mask stuff comes off, we're going to start doing podcasts in person again. Get rid of this fucking thing in between us. Anyway, Um. so uh, she comes on. We talk a lot about human emotion. We talk about the things that scared us as kids and how they continue to color and and shape our projects to, to the current date. Um, I love that stuff. You know, it's always the thing that you saw at like 12, 13 years old that scared you initially. Do you remember what movie that was for you? I remember what movie it was for me. It was Dreamscape. I've talked about it on the show before. Fucking crazy movie where they had like, have to travel into other people's dreams to kill them. This was like way before Inception, way before any of that stuff. And when you look back on the movie as an adult, you're like, okay, there's a lot of cheesy shit in this movie, but the nightmare stuff fucked me up big time. I think the only other nightmare stuff from a movie from my childhood that fucked me up more than Dreamscape was Terminator 2 and uh, Linda Hamilton holding on in that fucking fence as that atomic wave blew her into a skeleton. Oh, fuck. That fucked me up um but isn't it interesting how those scenes how like the the emotion the the visceral vibe of those scenes just sort of stick with you you know plaster themselves in your insides like mud on a wall and you're just like and as a as a filmmaker i'm always i'm always digging back into that i'm always trying to find what it is that i find scary about that what is it that what is that a human emotion that makes me feel that way um and uh, me and pride talk about that on today's show i think she's super cool uh she's definitely a filmmaker that i'm proud to know someone that i want to keep in touch with um but also i want to see what she does next um because i have a feeling that sensor is going to be amazing i haven't seen it yet but i've seen the trailers and i've seen all her shorts um and i'm gonna go see it in the theater um and i i feel for her because she hasn't been able to see it yet with an audience because she's still in lockdown In the uk so we do this over a zencaster she's in the uk it's like 5 p.m there and it's like 9 a.m here for me um and uh she was telling me how she got into uh she opened the midnight at sundance uh 2021 i don't i don't think she was there for that which sucks then uh she also got into the berlin film festival and she's not able to go see it there (laughs) talk about heartbreaking Uh, her movie just opened in the us here this week um, and I think it's about to open in the UK next week there. So she'll finally be able to see it with audiences. there. Uh, it's such a heartbreaking thing to hear a filmmaker, not be able to sit down and watch it in these great experiences. So we talk about that stuff too. Um, so strap yourselves in, uh, and get ready to dig deep into, uh, a new voice of horror, uh, and someone that I think is going to become quite a director for the genre. Um, so you know the deal, turn up those noise canceling headphones, sit back and relax and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process.
1: This depiction is dangerous.
0: Come on, ain't it? I'm cutting it. Butchering, sadism, murder.
1: A wave of depraved and corrupt horror video. Confusing fiction with reality.
0: Doug Smart, producer, Ident Investment Films. Maybe Enid could watch my latest Frederick North submission. Wanted a woman's eye on this
1: film. This is Actress. I've got this feeling really that's Nina. my sister. You know, if someone did take it, then they're still out there. You've
0: never been clear on exactly what you remember. You'd be surprised what the human brain can edit out when it can't handle the truth. Someone's losing the plot.
1: I was wondering if you had anything else on this actress. What's going to happen to her? Well, that's top secret.
0: People think that I create horror. Horror is already out there. In all of us. thanks for being on the show. I'm very excited to talk to you this morning.
1: Thanks for having me, Mike. It's lovely to be here.
0: (laughs) So where where are you right now? Are you in Wales right now? Where where, where are you right now?
1: I'm in London. So I I wish I was in the States at the moment, obviously, because the films are out over there and I'm stuck basically in the country where the film isn't showing. (laughs) (laughs) We're also, we've got our Berlin Film Festival premiere today and I can't go there either so I've just been stuck in my house knowing it's playing in other places and
0: um, yeah you're being robbed you're being robbed of that audience (laughs) experience I mean we spend so much time as filmmakers like working on our own and building these things and then uh, we get uh, you're trapped (laughs) like that sucks
1: (laughs) it's gonna be amazing when I get to see it with an audience for the first time I'm really you know i'm really looking forward to that because it is it, it does feel like as filmmakers that's the next stage of getting to know your project in a way like you know it's the bit where you can look at it and not be still working on it hopefully in your head
0: <laughs> and for the audience that's listening we're talking about her brand new film sensor which i'm excited about we were just talking offline it's uh playing here in los angeles for those of you listening uh, it's hopefully it still is by the time the episode comes out, but it's playing down at the Alamo draft house, um, at limited capacity, which basically means that it's hard to get tickets because <laughs> it's like half, <laughs> half, because I went into, we ended up going to see the new conjuring instead because I was the only one I could get tickets for. And I was like, man, this, this screen's almost sold out. And then I go into the theater. I'm like, Oh, it's, it's fucking empty in here. It's like, Oh, okay. Limited capacity. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, But uh, I can't wait to see it. Like uh, the stuff that really sort of stuck out to me was you're obviously, you have been in love with horror since you were a kid. And this, it it almost feels like this is a glimpse into the obsessions of the things that scared you when you were younger with all the VHS stuff that you're doing. Uh, Am I way off base here? Is this uh,
1: Not at all. I think definitely particularly like the VHS thing for me, I grew up in, rural Wales in the middle of nowhere. Um, The the closest cinema was like a half an hour drive and there was one bus a week to get to it. So my opportunities (laughs) to see things in the cinema were limited. So I grew up with like this shelf of videos that were my parents' and family's VHS collection that had some... The majority of them had been recorded off the telly. We didn't Mm -hmm. tend to like buy brand new stuff like you just you know take the thing that was playing so you've got all the adverts in between as well (laughs) and then there's the stuff that you've taped that was taped over something else that comes through a little bit and so I guess that for me was like my way into being obsessed with film was this collection that I was limited to and watching those films over and over and over again because I didn't have what we have now you know watching films now is so different we've got the internet mm-hmm. and we've got you know, places we can just order that blu-ray from you know we didn't have that you know when i was growing up
0: which is interesting because there was a sense of of uh you know just watching these things over and over again and really getting immersed into this uh tone into this like uh very specifically crafted world that that uh i did the same thing like i had a handful of vhs tapes that i would just wear out and i remember as a kid just wearing them out so that they'd break and that would just, that was like the worst day ever i'm like we have to buy another one
1: <laughs> <laughs> i know i remember when um, my copy of um twin peaks firewalk with me came out of the the VHS player, and you know that feeling when you're like, "Oh no!" It's and you pull it, and then there's just the spool, and you're like, just heartbroken because you're thinking, like, "Where am I going to get another copy of this from?" You know, it's so hard to find it in the first place, and now it's been eaten. That horrible feeling where you're watching something on VHS go like, woo, 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 and you think, "Oh, that's it. It's getting <laughs> <eaten> alive."
0: <laughs> I was joking around with my brother because uh, we used to watch. Because my when I was a kid, I like young, young kid, I was obsessed with dinosaurs and I was obsessed with Godzilla and all that stuff. So randomly, if my parents were in some weird store, they'd pick up VHS tapes that just had dinosaurs on the cover and they'd bring them home. And there was this really, I, I, oh man, I'm going to forget the name of it, but there was this really shitty, sloppy B dinosaur movie uh, made in the 70s about a bunch of like leotard wearing scientists that land on this planet that's all dinosaurs. And it's the trashiest movie, but I know the, every piece of dialogue word for word. And I know all of the music cues and I randomly, some, someone posted something online and someone else was playing in the room. And I just was like, I know exactly what the next line is because you get so lost in these little worlds that were presented to you. Um, and it's, it's, yeah. it's not like it's better than it is today. Cause today you have, like audiences have access to our work. Audiences have access to so much really great stuff, but there is something to be said about like that rewatching and overwatching and, and what that does to our brains. Um,
1: yeah. and yeah, I, I remember, I remember when I first cause when one of my obsessions, like when I was really young was the lost boys and, um, I used to watch that I knew all the lines you know You're just waiting for your favorite line like death by stereo like, they're only noodles Michael and all that and then <laughs> when I first saw that uh, you know with an audience and I sat in a room with a bunch of other people and everybody was reciting the same yeah. lines and you were like wow we were all having this experience yeah. on our own and now we can you know come together and recite the lines geekily into like a choir
0: (laughs) (laughs) i love that the first time i went and saw i think it was i think it was ghostbusters because i was too young to see ghostbusters in the cinema and so years later i think it was in my early 20s i saw a midnight screening of ghostbusters and i saw it on the big fucking screen and just the 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 uh visual experience was so much different because I saw all these details in the background that you could never really see on your TV screen. And then just that audience participation that went with it, it was, it was so heartwarming. It was so, it was such an emotional experience for me uh, because I had, you know, worn out that VHS tape and that is how I saw it. Maybe I catch it on TV. Maybe I'd pop in the VHS tape and I'd recite the lines over and over and it was my own little world. And then blowing that back up to like the big screen, it changed yeah. everything for me. You know, so yeah,
1: yeah, totally.
0: It's super cool. It's super cool, and I I like this sort of tangent that we're sort of going down, um, with like the stuff that has inspired us and sort of these visuals. It let me ask you as a director and as a storyteller: Are there what are the human emotions that really tend to come back for you? What are the human emotions that really make you curious?
1: I think one of the things that drew me to horror in the first place was uh, repression, like characters who uh, have um, huge shame about some aspect of themselves or something that they've done. And because of that, they repress an element of themselves. Hmm. They push it down and they push it away. And it's it's always going to come out then in some twisted, weird you know other way and I never really thought about horror in terms of like when I was making my first short films I wasn't thinking I'm making a horror film I was actually exploring repressed characters but making stuff that I didn't really realize at the time was horror until other people looked at it and said that's horror but I guess over years I've realized that there's a connection for me, between horror and repression and horror and shame um, or the things that we don't want to face in the world but we try to ignore and push away and, and how those things can turn into monsters or forces <laughs> that come and get us. You know, eventually they'll come and get you, but the more you ignore it, the more twisted they'll become. Yeah. Um, so I think that was certainly a way in and that's definitely there in censor. Um For sure, I mean, in the idea of censorship and the things we we don't want to look at in life or we shouldn't look at in film or we don't want to address or you know look at in ourselves or communicate about ourselves to other people, that was all you know what drew me into that story as
0: well so that that obsession or that that fascination with repression that you have is this based on personal experience or is this based on? On, on seeing someone else go through some sort of repression when you were younger, like or was it just something that you stumbled across as you were exploring characters and exploring the the craft of filmmaking for you?
1: I think I've always been quite an open person. I don't know, I'm sure it is there from my past, but I'd probably go need to go and have some counselling or something to figure <laughs> out where it came from exactly. Mm-hmm. Um I do think it's something I look at in the world and think, you know, wouldn't it be healthier if we all didn't have to hide things about ourselves or feel we had to hide things about ourselves or yeah. about our lives. So I think it's there in maybe me thinking weirdly like you're creating something that's in in a horror space but actually it's coming from like an attitude of health like mm-hmm. wouldn't we all be better if we if we shared the dark side of ourselves and um yeah like didn't feel so ashamed of things that maybe if we spoke about them and got them off our chest we'd realize that we're all feeling a bit like that or you know yeah that that leaving it to fester in the dark is actually making things get worse and worse and worse and I I suppose it's partly just an obsession with that idea but also I guess that it sort of leads me to think about characters who do bad things. I've always been drawn to characters who are morally a bit shady. You know that what is it that propels something, somebody, somebody to do something bad? And and again, like in within this realm of eighties horror, the idea that it could have been a film that make makes somebody do something terrible <laughs> for me is a very simplistic view um, and. I'm more interested in digging into like what are the complexities of that like why why do people do terrible things um, and also why do we want to watch that <laughs> <laughs> because I know I do I watch horrible stuff all the time and I'm always asked like so why horror and you think well why I don't know what is it about my brain that likes to look at this stuff and pick it apart and go there and spend time in the dark in my mind and actually perhaps is that a healthy thing like are the people that are going around saying like everything's fine I'm normal I'm I'm a good person <laughs> are they actually just not dealing with something like deep and dark and traumatic like it's good to get this stuff out of your system
0: I agree with you you and I share a lot of the same sort of obsessions for me it gets into uh, it, it gets even deeper into the subconscious. I'm fascinated with our inner voice. I'm fascinated with the, the, the thing that we constantly turn to for guidance, which is like this collective of our experiences and what we've seen and what people have told us we're supposed to do. And so, you know, I, I feel like as a species where humans are very much like a tester where it's like, is this hot? I don't know. me put my hand on it. Yeah, no, it's hot, you know, and that's kind of what we do. Um, and I think that, a lot of folks, when they're younger, dependent upon what your upbringing is and dependent upon uh, your family support system, there's so many things for you to test and figure out as you're sort of getting out of the nest and sort of going out there and whether you're, uh, you know, testing how That's you crazy. respond to the people around you. Oh, are you still there? Oh, did I lose you? Man, I was right in the middle of a good statement, too and there we go all right so what i was saying was that uh, <laughs> uh just so the audience knows zencaster fucked me again so that's basically what just happened um <laughs> uh, but what i was saying is that i'm i'm obsessed with like that inner voice and how we turn to this thing that we've created to sort of process life and process trauma and process these things and that inner voice ends up shaping who we are and how we deal with stuff in life. And I think you're completely right that if we were in a culture where we were allowed to fail a bit more and you were everything wasn't supposed to be perfect, everything wasn't supposed to be a shiny fucking Instagram mm-hmm. filter, then we might be a bit healthier as a society because we can come out and go like, look, I put my hand over the fire. It was hot. I learned my fucking lesson from it. So now I'm a better person for it. And especially today where, you know, we get off real hard on like, you know, this person's a piece of shit and they're a piece of shit and they should be shunned for the rest of their life for being a piece yeah. of shit. So it, it's tough, man. It's a tough yeah, thing. But it
1: is true. I mean, processing your own stuff does happen. I'm sure that is what I'm doing when I'm making stuff, that there's something cathartic. And I think there's something very cathartic about horror. Um, You know, but I think there's yeah. lots of m- me and my life in my films, but it's very hidden and woven in it's not on the surface but it a lot of it comes from a personal place but it's just you know it's it's ways you can kind of yeah, process that stuff I suppose
0: yeah I, I completely agree and I, I I'm the same way I tend not to be a filmmaker that's like this is I don't use my films necessarily as a soapbox for what I am dealing with in my life but no matter what we do as as artists we're experiencing things and I I at least find as a as a filmmaker it's kind of my job to look around and ask a hundred questions about why someone's doing something so that I can process that later. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's a lot of stuff that I do in my prep where I'll look at a character and try not to judge my characters and sit here and go okay, so this character is just an asshole and I, like I, I'm always going well why and what did, where are they coming from and why did they decide to do that and and I think in that exploration as a storyteller we end up becoming a lot more like observant we observe a lot more as as humans does that make sense
1: mm. yeah yeah absolutely i mean i think that's how you have to work when you're writing don't you and it's almost like when you're writing you're every character um <laughs> because you have to get into the headspace of that character and be like okay what what they what's this person doing next what i, I need them to do this but how can i get them to do that in a way that feels truthful to that character and then that informs the character. But I think then when you hand that character over to an actor, that's exactly how they're thinking about it. You know, they're coming at it from a place of non-judgment, you know, of of, because we we don't think of ourselves, uh, you know, the the person you see on the outside as a character who's being a total (laughs) arsehole, they don't think of themselves as an arsehole. They think they're doing the right thing. So I do think that as filmmakers, you are constantly having to empathise with your characters. And for me, like, um, you know, some of my favourite antagonists are the ones that, like Blue Velvet's probably one of my favourite films. And I think Frank Booth is my favourite antagonist, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's because he's vulnerable. It's because he is vulnerable and you can see the cracks there that and that's because of Dennis Hopper's incredible performance but it draws me into him so much more because he's so complicated um he's the only uh, it's funny because I always think of him as being the, one of the only kind of honest characters in that emotionally <laughs> honest characters in that film and he's called Frank he is frank in his <laughs> you know in his emotions as well he just says it how it is and everybody else is a little bit polite and you know, uncomfortable about certain things in the real world in that film. But um, yeah, I think you're having to try to identify as much as you can with the bad guys in your films as much as the supposed good guys. But I tend to like to tell stories, not all the time, but sometimes about who might might be normally considered the, the bad guy. Yeah. They interest me a little bit more.
0: Yeah, me too. I, mean, the, the, I think it is because of the conviction that they have. Often it's the honesty that they have just getting to a position where you're like, I'm, I'm doing this because I have a purpose. I'm doing this because I'm like, there's a reason for this. And I've decided I've done my research and I'm being honest about this. I love bad guys that are honest about it where it's like, I don't like to do this, but I got to do this. There's a reason for it. And you can't help but respect the conviction. You can't help but respect the fact that they've spent that time as opposed to the leads and oftentimes the leads, it's really tough to make a lead not boring because the lead has to go <laughs> through the tropes to get to that point. Yeah. You know? Bad. Yeah,
1: there's also that annoying, like likable note that you get, which Ugh. I think, is you know, that. But, uh, but for me, there's just so many characters that I love who are totally unlikable. You know, I think of, I love Nightcrawler and I think Jake Gyllenhaal's character and that is morally completely ambiguous <laughs> and and you're just sat there going, like, how can he do this? But the reason we're interested is because he has a really great, clear goal um, and, and he's interesting mm-hmm. and that's what it should be. You know, is this character interesting rather than it, are they likeable? I don't really care if they're likeable. Mm-hmm. I just need to be interested in their story. I'm not going to be, like, meeting up with them afterwards for a... For
0: a dream, for anything.
1: <laughs> um, like, I just need to be interested in them for the duration of the story um, and go on them with it, with them on their journey.
0: Yeah. Uh huh. But all the suits that stand behind us are like, I don't like to feel awkward at all when I see the <laughs> like, setting. Cause if I feel awkward, that means I'm going to be losing a couple million dollars. So make them likable, <laughs> you know, show some show yeah. a flashback where they, they had a puppy. You know what I mean? You're yeah. just like, come on, guys! Yeah. It's a horror movie. It's supposed to be awkward. <laughs> That's the idea behind it. Um, so, when you work with your when you work with your actors, um, so as far as your preparation process goes, I assume that when you read the script, you sort of get your uh, you in your mind's eye, you understand what the film's going to be. Are are you putting together like uh, a bunch of different options for where? you think that the characters are coming from or the backstories are coming from, uh, are you very sort of focused on that? You walk into a set and go, this is who my characters are. And this is what I want from you. Or are you creating a list that you're bringing to your talent and saying, like, what if this happens and maybe this should happen? Like what's your process working with talent?
1: I mean, I think when it comes to backstory, there's always an element or a certain amount of that there when you're writing the script because you're constructing the character like we say you know why are they doing that um why are they making these choices you're constructing those reasons as you go so i mean for example on censor you know enid's backstory is such a big part of the story because she's got this gap in her memory that that she can't Access And so, Hmm. you know, we're playing around with that and how that um, affects her relationship with her parents and how that's made her become a film censor and what what her drive is, you know, as a person and how that's linked to her, maybe the things she feels ashamed about in her past. So there was already quite a lot of stuff that you're constructing. And for me, um, I guess I like to have as much of that built up as possible, but then allow space for the actor to come in and make it their own. Mm-hmm. So you need to have a clear um, amount built around that character so that it is the character that you need it to be through the story to tell the story you're trying to tell. But I think actors are so imaginative and, um, you know, it, it's, it would be silly not to use that mm-hmm. if you're working with characters that, Also, it's about making them feel like they're embodying the character. You you know, I think as a writer-director, there's a point where you have to bring the actor in as the the additional writer of this character. Mm -hmm. That's how I, in in my head, you're casting someone who you trust to come in on that level because if I cast this person, they're going to do one version of the character, which is almost like a, physical form of writing mm-hmm. if I cast a person we're going to feel like this and feel differently about the character you know so so that that casting decision is so key and then I, th- I think it's about working very collaboratively with the cast to figure out those um, details in the backstory that maybe you're not ever even going to see on screen um, but they bring the person to life for you and the actor. And they can also be little things that you can use as triggers on set. So there might be things you talk about with the actor off set and during prep that um, is to do with something in your own lives or something you talk about that could have happened mm-hmm. in the character's story that isn't on screen that, that can nudge the scene in a certain way or just makes that person feel like a real fully fleshed out person for the actor. So... I do work quite collaboratively, but I, I think you have to, as the director, you have to have a very clear idea of what you want um, because everybody's looking to you at the end when you call cut <laughs> and everyone's turning around yeah. and saying, okay, what do you want? What, what are we doing next? So you're the person telling the story, but you're uh, drawing on everybody else's you know, ideas and um, things that they can bring to it as well that can just make it all even richer. Yeah. So I love that process. I love working with actors and I had such an amazing cast on Censor. I mean, Neve Algo, who plays the lead, is um, just a, a director's dream in terms of her access that she has to her, her emotions. Mm-hmm. And she's just, she's, she's always playing for truth. So even if you're in quite a, mad world in your film. (laughs) You've got somebody that's grounding you emotionally and drawing you in empathetically to that character. But then I had all these other actors that over here in the UK for me are like some people I've watched for years on screen that Mm -hmm. I got to work with. Um, So they were kind of coming in and out. And as a director, I was just really lucky to get to have such experienced cast coming in. I just wished I wished I had more time with each of them, basically.
0: All right, gang, it is time to do a little sponsor read, do those ad reads. Got to show some thanks to the men and women that make the show possible And uh, first up our good friends over at Puget Systems if you're a filmmaker that is looking for a new computer if your old system is taking forever to render out your final project if you're getting that pinwheel of death every time you try to do something if you are just realizing that uh, you're being forced to shoot with higher formats and it's just slower on the system it is time to build a new computer and why not build yourself a PC I know That a lot of you are afraid of PCs, right? They don't come in those pretty little boxes that you spend thousands of dollars or more on. And you're just going to throw the fucking box out in the trash. I have been talking to other folks. I'm going to try to keep my rants to a minimum on today's ad read. I'm going to be positive. Here's why I like to build PCs. PCs, I'm allowed to customize my hardware specifically for the software that I use, right? And believe it or not, not all graphics cards work the same way. There isn't the perfect system to do the optimal for all the programs. So decide what kind of computer you need. Are you building a gaming computer? Are you building a Premiere computer? Are you building an After Effects machine? Are you doing sound work? Uh, be smart about it. Build a system that works specifically for what it is that you need. Uh, and works well for that main program. Uh, and I know a lot of you out there are like, look, I don't want to build my own pc i don't want to go through the process of trying to figure it all out i don't blame you you want to like go online order something have it show up in a box i get it i did the hard work and i found today's company puget systems puget systems builds custom built pcs custom built pcs based upon the software you use head on over to pugetsystems.com check out the packages they have they put it together very simply for you we can start out with a starter base model, and then you can just customize it from there. And these guys love to build custom systems. That's what they do. So reach out to them, tell them what it is that you have, what it is that you're looking to build, what kind of budget you need, and they will put together a system. Can you imagine being able to talk directly to these people? Not to mention that their customer service is real folks. So when you have a problem, you're actually talking to a real person there. I know all the people over there. I know the guys that run the company. It's a family run business. Um, They're amazing. They care about creatives. They're incredibly supportive. So if you're looking to build a new computer, head on over to PugetSystems.com. Also supporting the show, as always, our good friends over at Quasar Science. One of the best advancements in our industry has been lighting over the past, at this point, eight to 10 years. Swapping into LEDs, has been so amazing, creatively, you're able to get better colors, you're able to get better balanced lights, lights that don't get hot in your hands, so you can actually fucking like uh, lightsaber a light around an actor's face to try to figure out what the right angle of light is. I love doing that. Um, They require very little power, so a lot of these things can run off batteries. A lot of them are battery powered to begin with. I've got a few bi-color led units from quasar that you just plug in and uh they run battery they actually have little magnets on the back they're fucking great for doing inside car stuff um and they're very small packaging so like if you have uh, a tiny hatchback if you've got barely any storage space in the apartment that you have um led tubes are great for that because you can have you can put yourself together a kit that is multifunctional um and that you can store in your closet behind that rack of fucking 40 shoes that gina has you don't even wear all those shoes <laughs> um so anyway like i said head on over to quasoscience.com and check out what they're working on check out what they're making man you're probably gonna buy some new products for your kit i guarantee you will uh let's see who else is supporting this show um I think that's it for today's episode. I think we're just going to do two ad reads today. We're going to keep it simple and short. I will say, head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There, if you're new to the show, if you showed up because you saw that we were doing an episode on Censor and you're a big fan of Prano, and you wanted to hear her share her secrets, um, welcome. Welcome to the show. Have a look around. Head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com. I've curated the hundreds of episodes that we've done by subject material so if you just want to get nerdy with directors i have a whole director section but the show is more than just filmmaking the show gets into uh, obsessions the show gets into how people that decide that they're going to turn their backs on that formulaic nine to five lifestyle how do they make it through it how do they stay inspired what are their lives like how do they deal with the anxieties with all that stuff right that's what this show has become so We interview musicians, we interview chefs, um, we talk to anybody that I want to meet, essentially. And I think the longer you listen to the show, the more you understand that this is a very selfish thing for me, I do this show for myself first, and then you guys second. But I love that we're doing it together. I'm more than happy to hand you a beer and have you sit down at the table with me and these people that I want to talk with. Because why? Because I, I, I wanted that as a kid. I could only imagine how different my career would have been if, as a younger filmmaker, all of those directors that I looked up to did this. You know? So I hope you guys love it. Like I said, head on over to loveoftheprocess.com and take a look around. It's a great place to see the trailers for the movies that we're talking about in the show. It's a great place to see collections of the work of our guests. Um, And also, hang out with our sponsors. And please, as I wrap up this ad read... Just click on any of the links in our description of this episode for any of the sponsors. If you want to support the show, that is the easiest way to do so. Uh, another way that you can do so is sign up for a free trial at Audible. If you haven't done so already with another podcast or however else you found out about it, if you are an Audible virgin, uh, click our link below. Sign up for a 30-day free trial. With this free trial, you get a free audiobook. You also get access to a lot of Audible's content that comes with the monthly subscription. So they have like other podcasts, they have narrative shows, they've got a lot of stuff up there to listen to. Um, It is where I started listening to Judith Wesson's books. And I have no problem plugging her stuff because it's such a big change for me. A big life change for me. Uh, I actually grabbed her directing actor's book on Audible and listened to it first. So you're going to hear us mention it on the show. (laughs) It turns out that uh, Prano also likes her work. Surprise, surprise. Um, so if you guys want to get into that book, but you uh, don't have time to sit down and physically read a hard copy, then uh, grab it on Audible and use our link. Like I said, it's uh, audibletrial.com backslash and of the process. The link is below in the description of the show. All right, let's get back into it. So this was your first feature, right? So everything you were doing prior to this was like short films and music videos, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm in the same boat. So like, uh, right now I'm in the process of prepping my first feature. So I'm going through the process of putting everything together and it's, um, the quarantine has been really great for that because it's actually forced me to, you know, once you realize that no one else is fucking working, you're like, okay, so I don't have to have that anxiety. So I don't have to be working. And it's allowed me to sort of dig into this preparation process, which I've changed my stuff drastically after reading a bunch of books on on prep. And uh, I love it at this point. It's for me. There's this discovery of of like questions, and ultimately, it's a mining questions and putting together all these different questions for crew and cast and for for characters. Um, And it's been such a exhilarating but lonely process like prepping a film just is incredibly lonely for me is it the same way for you
1: I don't know I, I don't I remember just I love prep I'm I get really excited about it and I think maybe it's just a different thing because prepping in lockdown I can imagine it being a lonely thing but when I was <laughs> yeah. prepping it was like the wheels were in motion and you're just thinking oh, I hope I get the end of this document I'm making before we're all actually <laughs> on set <laughs> you know um, Yeah, yeah. but I, I love prep when I was prepping for censor one of the you know books I guess that I, I found really useful was the Godfather notebook um, mm. uh, Francis for Coppola's uh, system for prepping for the Godfather there's actually a really great 10 minute YouTube clip where he mm. explains how he went about breaking down every single scene and he had these kind of sets. It was like five things that he broke each scene down against and then he could come back to that and it would always lock him back into what why that scene was there and what he needed, what were the important hmm. elements and information that he needed to get across and what the tone was and those kinds of things. And I kind of created my own system, I guess. Like in my head, I was like, I'm going to do exactly this. But then slowly I realized that wasn't, the way for me to work, but I just took my writer hat off and put my director hat on and sat and I was like, okay, what's the purpose of this scene? You know, why is it here? And then once you've asked yourself that question, you can um, you can focus in on how you do that the most effective way. And what are the things I mustn't miss on the day? Mm-hmm. You know, Like if mm-hmm. you're under pressure, under time pressure, you know, what are the really key things? Like, is it an emotional, Pivot for the character that's too, totally key or is it a bit of information that without that the story is not going to make sense so you're kind of identifying those things but then I also like started to use that as a way to just put all my references mm-hmm. together um, and it kind of built out into this um, massive PowerPoint <laughs> document that I shared then with my cast and crew uh, I think it was actually just with my crew not my cast I think I sent it to my lead because then everybody can start to imagine the same, you know, atmosphere and tone and, and see what's important. But also I wanted the departments to all know what was going on for other mm. departments. So, you know, because I guess as directors, we're thinking about every department and we're thinking about what's the sound doing. And I, I get inspired visually by sound. So is it helpful for my cinematographer to know if I've got like a sound escape plan in my head for this um, you know is it important that you know production design and costume are in tune on how this shift is happening visually in this moment and then they can come together and and it, you know bring their ideas so I guess it was like a way of me getting everything down and then um, and then making sure everybody was kind of speaking mm. to each other in a way or at least starting mm, point. I agree
0: that. with all that stuff that's really great like um, a lot of my prior work has always been visually stimulated so I started as a cinematographer for a while and so my stuff has always been very graphic and and visually oriented and being a uh, an independent filmmaker and being someone like you know where you're having to put everything together yourself I felt like all the time, most of my priorities at that time were like, how do I cram as much shit on the screen as I possibly can? How can I make this look like it cost, you know, $200,000, even though it costs like two two grand, you know? (laughs) And so that was always my focus. And thankfully I did that because that helped get me wrapped. Like you and I have the same agent, like helped go through this whole process, but uh, my new discovery, I've been reading, uh, and I, like I've, I just had her on the show, which will be a prior episode, but Judith Weston wrote these books, Directing Actors, and then the uh, Film Director's Intuition, which I'm reading, which yeah. I love. I
1: love Judith Weston. She's amazing. You so, had her on the show. Yes, yes. Oh, wow. I'll be tuning in for that.
0: She's wonderful. <laughs> She's like so wonderful, and I had such a great time with her. Um, but the stuff, have you read her books? Have you gone through those books?
1: Yeah. Yeah yeah she's I mean I I recommend those books to anybody who wants like I've got a few friends who are like oh I started directing stuff but I've just realized I don't actually know how to talk to actors <laughs> you know <laughs> a lot of people who come into it you know wanting to tell stories visually but then you know also sometimes I teach at film school and a lot of those students they're really scared of actors and I think her book just, it basically means I don't have to tell them anything. I just go read this because that's what we're all looking at. Um, um, And also those things are the things actors really respond to because on the other side, they're getting trained to respond to action verbs and things. So um, it's just, yeah. Amazing. She's, she's amazing.
0: I love it. Like the, the, because like I said, I, I was such a music video centric visualist. You know, and then this, and I, I say to her on the show, it's kind of funny. She's like, well, how do you, how have you seen actors? I'm like, to me, to me, it was always like a bunch of really, really amazing unicorns that showed up on my set and I didn't want to go scare them away. <laughs> That's kind of how we saw them. That's brilliant. <laughs> um, but the, the exercises that she has in her book... Uh, not, not necessarily there to, you know, give you the answers for what you need for it, but there to break down my preconceived notions of it. And when you said that you took your, you take your writer's hat off, that's great to hear that you take your writer's hat off and you put your director's hat on. Um, the same thing with me where I'll look at a script and my first, I'll read a line and go, okay, this is how I hear it. This is how it is. This is how the line's going to be. And for years, I was always like, OK, so how do I get a fraction of what I fucking hear in my head on the yeah. screen? You know, and her exercises that I've been going through for the past three months uh, have been so wonderful because then I'm essentially making note of, of that going, OK, so the character is going to go. Bleh. OK, write it down. Yeah. Got it. Now, what if they don't do that? And th- th- what are three other options for this? And sort of coming up with those three other options and suddenly I'm like, oh, that's fucking fascinating. So that means this character changes and that means that prop is interesting and this mm-hmm. is cool and, bu- 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 bu-. and it becomes incredibly exciting to me. Yeah. Um, and I, like, yeah. I feel like that lesson and, and that process is really changing how I'm going to make movies at this point, you know? Yeah,
1: well, I think understanding how actors work because actors are looking for the the way that they can play a scene and how the scene it works dramatically. And sometimes I think when we're starting out as filmmakers and writers, we can, you know, have this other thing that we're doing. I don't know, you know, is it, is it pretty pictures or is it um, an obsession with something else? Or we've got an idea for an overarching story, but we're not looking at the scenes and how they actually function as small, you know, events in the story that, that, (laughs) you know, push the tension. Mm -hmm. Um, and And I think the more i 've worked with actors, the more i 've gone back to my writing and been like, "Oh okay, you know actually, I need to look at who 's doing what in this scene you know who who what how, where's the conflict coming from and yeah, and how can you play with that and And one of the things I did on censor, which was great as much as I possibly could, was um once we 'd cast i uh tried to make sure we had some rehearsal space or at least a space in which I could sit and just hear the hear the scenes out loud with those actors mm-hmm. and talk about the scenes and see if anything was just... Sometimes you find when you're sitting there writing, you think there's like a point that needs to be repeated and you hear it <laughs> out loud and think, okay, either that's in the wrong order or I don't need this line, we've already done that or we're missing something at the end, you know, And I can go back then to the script, having heard it out loud um, and having run that through before you get on set and then it's too late. You you know, of course, you can sometimes change stuff on set, um, you know, but hopefully you're you're focusing there on actually the nuts and bolts of, of getting it in the can, you know, mm-hmm. um, rather than than still writing your script while you're <laughs> on set. But I know everybody works differently. There are some people that, you know, will be working very much more on an improvisational basis. So.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Like my whole process is over prep, 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 prep and mm-hmm. then have time for for uh discovery but also no i say this to my crew all the time i'll put up storyboards and i'll go okay these are here just in case we're all hung over so if you just follow <laughs> these today we'll make it through today but there's room yeah. for us to play and, and i i like i like the preparation is our job and the more that i've done this job the more i realize that this alone time is what i'm supposed to do and then i'm just essentially trying to translate all that to these folks that need to make it happen um, yeah yeah, totally. Yeah.
1: I think, you know, one of the things I've learned over the course of making shorts um, is, you know, you go in with a plan, basically. It, you don't have time once you hit the ground. Um, so for me, I've always been trying to achieve more than I've got time or money for. So in order for me to get that, mm-hmm. I need to go in with a clear plan. But you have to be open to the plan, not going to plan. <laughs> so either think you, you might not be able to do it the way you planned it or um or you might find a better way but there was one scene i did a short film called nasty which is kind of like a i guess like a it's got the same dna as sensor it's like a, like appearance. a proof of
0: concept almost for the feature right
1: it, it, kind of yeah it was like a way of exploring a lot of the ideas and when we were shooting that um there was you know so i plan everything very very carefully and then we got to the end of the day and we, had, we were meant to have like 45 minutes or an hour to shoot this scene. And we'd already gone slightly over into like, we, mm-hmm. were, we had a kid basically, mm-hmm. which meant like there was very limited flexibility in terms of extending how long we had. So I think we ended up with like 20, 15, 20 minutes to shoot this scene. And I was like, okay, we're shooting on 16 mil. And I remember thinking, <laughs> okay, just stick a light up there. And will I had it all was, it was all going to be like locked off shots and stuff. I was like, we just have to shoot it handheld. You're here. We'll combine these shots. You're here. You follow her. You do, you know, and it was basically like, this is, we either get it like this or we don't get the scene at all. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was quite scary. I remember because we hadn't got time to light it. And I turned around to my DP and I was like, I can't see anything on the monitor because <laughs> we're on film. So we've got this <laughs> crappy little camera inside the film camera. With a rubbish feed because we had no money for expensive equipment so i couldn't see anything so i was like is anything going to be exposed and she she gave me this like as confident as answer she could at that moment which was like
0: yeah, maybe
1: and i was like okay but well, we don't have time to worry about it we just got to shoot it and it was just this kind of crazy chaotic scene to shoot in a way but because i had a plan i knew what i needed visually and yep. then, when we got to the edit, it turns out it's one of my favorite scenes in the film, and that made me kind of go back and just go, "Oh man, it's so hard because as a director, you're trying to control everything because you want it to be like the thing in your head, but then sometimes when you let go, other exciting things can happen um, and I don't think I'd want to like shoot every scene like that for sure you know right. not and and it was the fact that that scene was quite high octane in in what was happening. So it, it kind of worked to just chuck it all on handheld and have the camera roam around. But it just made me go back and have this whole like dilemma in my head about like control mm-hmm. versus freedom in my work. And I think about that a lot because I, I do have a tendency to try to control everything that's going on. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, no, it's part of our it's part of our DNA as, <laughs> as directors. I hear that all the time from my girlfriend, where she's like, "You're not directing right now." <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I had a similar story when I was doing my film 12km. We, I designed an entire sequence because I knew I only had a certain amount of time. I had a certain amount of money, and so I hit a point where I was like, "Okay, I can only have the lighting truck for four days." And so I have this whole sequence that I went, let's design a sequence around a flashlight because then I can shoot this whole thing with a beautifully censored camera with a flashlight. So we'll lose the truck so I can save that money. So send the truck home. And uh, my cinematographer did his research and he found like this amazing flashlight that like gave off a lot of light. And I was like, this is perfect. And we designed a whole sequence where the character sort of like X filing his way through this basement and, like, he shines the light on specific objects that will illuminate his face when he needs to be illuminated. And it's it's perfect. And then I can do a lot of coverage because I'm not moving lights around and shit. So it's like, okay. So we'll, we'll spend the afternoon in this basement with this flashlight. <laughs> so, so we fucking start the first shot. Goes down, does it, looks gorgeous. Atmosphere, smoke, haze, light, all that stuff. Gorgeous. Fantastic. Let's do another one. I'm in a good mood. Fantastic. Let's go again. Second one, he starts halfway through, the light starts flickering. The flashlight starts pulsing. And I was like, okay, what the fuck's going on with the, with the pulse? It just started. And so our the team, like all of a sudden, like the team surrounds you, you know? And then, like all the <laughs> all the fucking like the techs around the camera are just like, it's got to be something happening with the camera. And so they're like, they're pulling the camera apart and they're doing that research. And I'm talking to the cinematographer and he's like, I don't know. Let's try it again. And so we, we try it again, starts the scene flashlight's fine, then it starts pulsing, it starts flickering as we go through. And I'm losing my shit, because I don't have any lights. <laughs> I sent the light truck home. And so this flashlight's doing this thing. And I said to, like, where we stopped. The production came to a halt. And I don't know if you feel the same way, but when that happens, I start sweating, I get into panic mm-hmm. mode. You just see shots falling off the wall, where you're just like, yeah. that shot's gone, this shot's gone. And so uh turns out that this flashlight uh that was gonna save me all this money, the batteries in it, as soon as the batteries got to like five percent output, they started to pulse. So I had right. to send a PA out to buy these batteries, which cost for a package of batteries, they were like fifty bucks US. And yeah. so <laughs> I had a whole day's <laughs> worth of stuff. And out of each fresh battery, I think I got about a minute and a half, two minutes.
1: Oh my god.
0: So we, we ended up spending more on this fucking flashlight than I would have spent on, a, on a, a lighting truck. But the point is that in that period of like an hour and a half when the whole set fucking stopped because we had to send someone to go get these batteries, I'm, I'm talking with my assistant director, and you're in that troubleshooting mode. And once you, at least with me, once I swallow down that panic, which is like, fuck, everything's fucked. And then I sort of swallow it down. I'm like, okay, let's process this. How much time am I going to have so I took like a whole sequence that I had about seven shots for, and I'm like, we could do this in one dolly move. And if we go boop, 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 And we came up with this really great way of handling it. And I love that scene. It's so fresh to me and it's so new. And we ended up getting the fucking batteries and we ended up making that stuff work really well. But um, like you said, sequences like that end up inspiring me to be a little bit more loose on set. Um, but I don't. I don't think I want to live that way every day. I think I. Would, I think no. I would die of anxiety after doing no the movie.
1: totally. But also, you have to go in with a plan. You have to have a plan in the first place. Otherwise, you can't work that out that quickly on the spot. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think it's never going to stop me prepping like a crazy control freak. Um, but then it's that thing of, like, just allowing the space to breathe sometimes on on set. I. I did a music video which was designed in order to like just be able to have ideas on set. Um, It was, I basically, I'd just done a short film and you know, it was one of those kind of like, you've got two days to shoot a short and you come off the back of it and you're like, ah, the AD was doing my head in and you're like, (laughs) you know, I want to not have to move on all the time. I want to have an idea and and try it. And you, you those sorts of shoots aren't set up to do that. So, I designed a music video shoot which would allow me to have a playground, basically. Mm
0: -hmm. And it's
1: a music video called Poltergeist. And Mm -hmm. it was uh, me playing all the characters. And that's not because I'm an egomaniac. It was actually because (laughs) I thought, okay, well, what are the restrictions? You know, what are the things that slow you down and stop you being able to go, hey, here's a weird mirror in this location. Let's shoot some weird stuff with this lens. You know, the, the things that do that are having multiple people on set who are waiting to go home and, you know, you've got this actor turning up at this time and so you have to, you know, move on and etc. I just thought I, if I play all the characters myself then it's just me and my DOP on set and we don't need mm-hmm. to worry about anybody else's time, we can just be us. And so I got a make a makeup um, artist to come and, like, transform me physically so I be all these different people Mm -hmm. and we just spent two two nights in a warehouse me and my dp but we we had like um we had this it was it was like like there was a big section that uh, was a circus that had all their kit there and they said oh we've got loads of park and lights we can use whatever (laughs) you want and we're like wicked so we're going to be able to you know light everything and we got there and they only had one plug so they only had one (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> one way of plugging one light in, so we had like thirty park but one we could only actually use one at a time, <laughs> um, and we didn't have a light stand. We couldn't find a light stand anywhere, so we were like, "Well, we'll just get this ladder, and we gaffer taped one park hand to a ladder, and um, just went around this warehouse, and it was amazing." I I had so much footage though so to edit that took a long time, but I'm so proud of that piece of work, and it's so weird yeah. because. You, I had like a rough story in my head. It was, you know, it was just a bizarre sort of girl gets chased, enters warehouse and comes across all these kind of weird characters who freak her out. And then it kind of had this weird sort of loop to it, basically. Yeah. yeah. So it had a structure, but then we were able to just play within that and have an idea on the spot. But I do think you have to construct your production around the kind of thing you want to do if you want to do something more experimental and free like that Um, but i really love that kind of thing yeah i think it keeps the spirit alive
0: music videos are great for that and for for years for me at least in the beginning music videos were that once it became more of the music business of music videos and i started to have to deal with labels and start to have to deal with bands mm-hmm. that would send like terrible ideas. And you're like, what the fuck? And you're <laughs> trying to sort of sort your way through that. I got sort of disenfranchised by that industry. And, but you know, yeah. you know, besides the fact that there's never money in that industry. So to have a career yeah. as a music video director is impossible. Um, but then lately, um, my girlfriend who was a fashion photographer for years has since gone on to rebrand pop artists and now uh, she's been directing again and i've just sort of been acting as sort of a consultant for her in the background and i've just seen her uh love in life like it reinvigorated love and experimentation with this stuff and mm-hmm. uh she just loves creating the moment she loves creating like body language and like movement and how all that stuff works and she was very fortunate to get a contract during fucking covid uh to mm-hmm. do b miller's campaign so she did like an entire pop artist's like eight music videos and it was just her and the pop artist to go and shoot and we were coming up with ways of like how do we light this thing how do we shoot this thing simply so it's just two people um and in that experimentation the stuff that you find uh because i did a lot of the editing for the stuff that you find in the back end, you're like that's fascinating so that like that weird reversal thing that you did with that thing that goes in the toolbox that's cool and like you end up finding all this really fun stuff and and i have a lot of young listeners on the show that are like hey is there a career in music videos it's like yeah you have to be really fortunate i think to have a career in music videos but uh it's a great playground to fuck around in if you're trying to sort of expand your uh, visual imagination you know what i mean
1: absolutely i totally agree like i went into music videos being like wow you can just play and it, you know, that it can be non-linear and things don't have to make sense in the same way as they do when it's a kind of narrative story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you you know, you can do stuff that is purely visual. And But then I had a similar experience in terms of, you know, I kept putting my feature writing to one side because yes. you get a brief come through that's like, oh, well, this is short-term win, you know, because I can... Put an idea in for this, and then make this music video, and and then I'll do the feature in a minute, and and I and then you do the videos, and it's like okay, actually, what seemed like a good budget when you make your first commissioned music video, you quickly realise is nothing when you're actually, you know, yeah. paying everybody to come and work, and you you're getting paid this me- measly little amount to work on it, like you know, night and day for weeks and and, and I just thought I'm never going to get a feature made if I if I don't step back from this. So I ended up pulling away and I, you know, stepped away and stopped being wrapped on that front because I just thought the the time I'm doing all of this, I could be right in the future. 100%. And, um, so I, I did that and and no, I'm very happy I did do it that way. But I slightly fell out of love with the medium as well because... I think there's a point where, you know, it starts to feel like adverts for singers that you're not getting paid for very well. And <laughs> and rather than when you start out and you're really passionate maybe about the artists you're working with, you know, when you're doing it for nothing to just create. Right. And then it, it turns into something else. But so, I, yeah, who knows? Maybe one day I'll make another music video. But it's, yeah. Gives me a
0: funny weird feeling now Uh, well yeah I mean it's funny you and I are very similar because I had similar experiences where I was running a production company for years and we were doing music videos and we thought we would do like two or three being a a product of the 90s I was like looking up to like David Fincher and Spike Jones and all those guys Mm -hmm. and you're like okay so if I get wrapped then i could do like two or three music videos a year and then the rest of the time i could be working on my short and you just realize that the budgets are so small that it that is the the, the scramble the scramble is like i got to do fucking like 20 of these i got to do like 25 yeah. of these things and so then you're you're running with that for so long that years go by and for me years went by and i'm like why am i not fucking making movies what am i doing Ooh. and 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 i had to ask myself some serious questions and i think they're hit a point where I was like, "Am I hiding from doing it? Am I afraid of mm. making these things?" And so I, I, I had to shut it all down. I had to just go like, "Look, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Like, I, I have to completely focus on the movie stuff." And yeah, you forget how I think the audiences forget how much fucking time it takes for us to like make these damn things. You know <laughs> I what I know. mean? It's.
1: Years. I remember saying that when we were making Sensor, we were shooting, and you're all like in the forest, in the mud, you're leaving set at 6am and you're like, you haven't really had a good night's sleep in weeks and <laughs> you think, and then you go on to the edit. And then I remember saying to somebody, it's like, we work on these things for years. And then someone watches them 90 minutes and goes, yeah, was, yeah that was great. <laughs> <laughs> and I, just think, I mean, you know, you, that's, you know, that we chose to do it. So I absolutely love what I do and I wouldn't change it. And I feel very lucky to do what i love um but it is quite a funny thing time when you think of it that
0: way right well i mean just not just the actual creation of this stuff which you know sucks so much time out of our lives but the the preparation for it the pitching of it the the raising funds for it like all that stuff takes years and so then as a director this is my new world that i've been living in for like what four years now but as a prior director to that i was used to like uh, gratification. (laughs) I was used to like, you do a music video, you put it out and I get some likes and people are commenting on it. That's great. (laughs) You know, And you do like a commercial, you put it out and people go, all right, cool. Um, so these days I, like, if you look at my Instagram account, uh, I'm always joking around. I cook. So for me, making meals is like making little mini movies. So I am trying to like (laughs) satisfy that urge that I would have for gratification. And so I'm doing it with food now because, the actual act of, of getting a feature running. Oh, like I, I got into an, not an argument, but I got into a tiff with my producers recently because I'm just calling them and I'm like, okay, so what's going on? How's this going on? What's yeah. happening? What's happening? And they're like, you're what did they say to me? They go, you think in filmmaker mode, you need to start thinking in producer mode. And I was like, what <laughs> what does that mean? They go, it takes years. <laughs> like,
1: God yeah. damn it.
0: You know? So it, it, it's, it's tough. And I, You know, you have to, at least I had to come up with other ways to satisfy that, uh, that, er, that, that need for gratification. Because I found that if I, I don't know if you felt the same way. I found that if I'm doing these small projects, which have no money and they require you to pretend like they have a shitload of fucking money. So it requires all your attention. And then you come off of that and you're like, okay, so let me sit down and work on the scene. I just can't do it. You know, I can't do them both at the same time. Can you?
1: um I'm quite uh I do like to sort of immerse myself in one project at a time but I do think it depends on what stage that's at yeah um so like as a project gets kind of further and further developed and as it starts to really take shape I feel like I'm able to like step away a little bit and come back and it I know what it is whereas when you're starting out and it's like you're swimming through all your research and you're Mm. trying to find the the thing I do feel like I need to really like delve in and immerse and on sense. So when I started writing that, I basically like cocooned myself from the whole world. (laughs) I just went into like hibernation mode and, um, but then slowly over time you start to get to the point where you can kind of dip in and out of the script. Um, but I, I just think that even with a short film, sometimes a short can take a really long time as well. Mm -hmm. So you know juggling that is gonna take the energy and time away from a feature project, so I was doing i think you know the last short film I made was in two thousand and sixteen um, that was with film four and so i was you know during the process of of getting sensor up and running i wasn't um I wasn't shooting other stuff. I had a couple of other things I was developing. But I felt a little bit like, you know, when you go and talk to like producers that you're meeting for the first mm-hmm. time and they're so so what else are you working on? And yeah. you have to sort of make up some other things yeah. because you're like, well, actually, I've got this one basket and in the basket, I've got this one egg. Um, <laughs> and that egg is going to hatch. And um, I was putting all my energy into that because for me, I felt so sure that that would be my first feature. That's what I wanted to be my first feature. So even the other projects I was developing, you know, I was like secretly hoping that they didn't get like greenlit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I didn't want to make those films first. Um, it was I was really, really like, yeah, tunnel vision about about making this film first. Um, so, yeah,
0: yeah. That, yeah. I mean, I I started that way. So when I did. I, I sent you my shorts really late, so I, 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 you, you probably didn't see them. But I did um, this film called 12 Kilometers, um, which uh, was about like this Russian drill team in the 1980s. It's Sort of like a John Carpenter meets David Lynch kind of horror movie. Really kind of fun. Mm, cool. And I did a proof of concept for that, and it ended up blowing up, which was really kind of interesting. Got me signed, got me agents, got me all that kind of shit. Um, and I thought that was going to be the feature. And so for years i was like prepping it and and doing storyboards on it and it's a big fucking movie it's like you know it's probably like a seven eight uh probably like a nine million dollar movie in that range so like it's a lot to be the first fucking feature film and um and i've said it on the show so i'm allowed to say it but like we got scott free so like ridley scott saw the movie and they're they're producing it and they're developing it and it was really great and so it just took so long for the development process and in that period of time luckily my writing partner and I sort of got together and we said well let's tr- let's try to figure something else out because it's taking so fucking long and and so we came up with this other film called Who's There which thank god we did because that one's going to go first and l- luckily because I didn't put all my eggs in that one basket um, this other film is actually going to help carry the big one that I want to do because they want me to do the smaller one first and I'll do this one first with a different company so um and then it's the same boat whenever I go in and I talk to producers or the agents, like like Morley's ask me all the time. The agents are just like, what else are you working on? What else is going on? What else you doing? It's like, asshole. I'm like fucking deep in this one right here. This one requires like all of my mental stability. And, and then I realized that it's less about having full flushed ideas, but having like a whole chest full of ideas yeah. where you're just like... This is fascinating to me, and this would be a cool remake, and this is interesting, and this is interesting. And so then you can walk into meetings with folks uh, and be like, boom. Because ultimate, yeah. ultimately, and this is a question I'm going to have for you, because ultimately you're waiting to get into the position that you're in right now, because you finished Censor, Feature Film, you're getting accolades, there's all sorts of industry write-ups on it. How's the world look for you now? Because now it's time for what's next, what's the second film like?
1: Yeah, no totally and um it's great. I mean, I definitely feel like uh things have shifted since Sundance for me in terms of, you know, the conversations and um opportunities. So it's I'm in this kind of mad moment where I I guess, you know, people talk about having a slate of films, don't they? And mm-hmm. and I I, as I said, with Censor, it was like, this is my slate of films, this film here. <laughs> and, I, and I and for me, that worked. You know, we we were lucky in Censor in terms of getting it funded. It all seemed to go according to plan. Nice. And it was a bit jammy, basically, you know, when you're just like, hmm, this is all, it, <laughs> you know, we got the people on board that we wanted to come on board and everybody who we went to seemed to say, you know, yes. So it was... It was great because over here, we're lucky as well. You don't have the public funding bodies in the States, but in the UK, we have, you know, organisations like the BFI right. and Film Wales. And we had Film4 on this as well that um, support the kind of filmmaker and um, are looking to kind of, you know, bring the new voices in filmmaking kind of into the world. And so that was always the aim for us like over here that felt like the kind of the golden egg of of having you know of financiers because we knew they wouldn't be like oh it's not gonna Mm -hmm. it's not you know there's not enough explosions Mm -hmm. (laughs) whatever you know whatever people say (laughs) that you know they're there to probe and question you but to ultimately help you tell the story you're looking to tell in the best way possible and so I feel really lucky on that front But yeah, I didn't have the slate of films. So now I am, I I had loads of ideas that were pinging around. So now I've got that space to really dig into those, but also read material that's coming in and and meet people to potentially start up um, new projects. So I'm in a a sort of annoying place where I've got loads of ideas, like very early stage Mm -hmm. and, I want to write them all at the same time. But like I was saying, I can't do that. I have to immerse myself in one. But the thing with this is like you'll hit like a, a problem area and, you know, you're like, oh, I need to figure out this one thing. I need to crack this code of this story. And there's this other, other project over the other side of the room going like... Write me. <laughs> I'll be much easier. Come on.
0: Yeah, yeah, Come yeah. Come on, you
1: know you want to write me next, and you're like, shut up. No, because you're going to be exactly the same. You're trying to lure me in, but you're going to have all the same issues. Because that's what it's like to write. You know, you you have to sit there and just like you know squeeze it out of your of your head or whatever however you see it like if it's sitting and kind of getting into the meditative space where the ideas come and you can flow with it um and it just takes a bit of time to mm-hmm. to build and and find the way of telling the story you want to tell in the in the original or unique way you want to tell it um so i've i'm excited about all the opportunities I don't know what the next film will be, but there's lots of things that I'd like it to be, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> but mm-hmm. they're, they're early days. So I guess it, for now, I'm just trying to see, you know, each thing in the moment and just develop the projects that I'm really excited about creating. And then as they grow, I'll I'll know what's next unless something comes along that's further in, you know, further along in development and I can jump on board. But i do I do prefer to generate my own stuff, even if i would I would direct stuff written by other people but
0: yeah 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 what um so now being through the years of experience that you've had doing shorts and doing music videos and then shooting your 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 feature like uh I assume it was like a very indie run set like a small crew for sensor was it like
1: yeah yeah, yeah it wasn't a big crew and and it you know we had. It was very ambitious, really, for what we had in yeah, terms yeah. of yeah. Yeah, what we were trying to achieve. And it, it's it was a decent budget for um, a first feature in the UK. Mm-hmm. But I think everything's relative. You have to think about how many locations are you looking at, how much cast, you know. Are talent, you looking at something talent. very contained in one yeah. house, then that budget can go really far. But we're, we were shooting a period film with big cast lots of locations, forest shoots <laughs> yeah. at night, uh, wanted to shoot on play five millimeter, you know, so I didn't kind of make it easy for myself in that sense. Like some people might say, go and shoot something really contained as your first feature. So you can kind of right. learn the ropes, but no. I never really thought that I'm just like, this is the film I'm making. Um, but yeah, it was uh, a small crew um, and, 25 day shoot, uh, up in Leeds in North England.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and yeah, it's great.
0: That sounds raw well, like it sounds wonderful. And, and so then I guess what my question ultimately would be, so now that you've done that stuff, like what do you want next as far as the shoots concerned? Are you, do you want like a, a slightly larger, small crew kind of uh, shoot? Or are you ready to jump on to like the, the big crazy train of, of directing something (laughs) larger? Like what do you, what would you like next?
1: I think, um, for a second feature for me, ultimately what I care about the most is the idea. Mm -hmm. Um, that's always the thing. I mean, I came off the back of shooting sensor and I remember thinking, Oh, I'd love to do something with just a few actors in like a, you know, like basically the what people say you should do for your first feature I kind of thought oh wouldn't it be it's mainly cuz I really wanted to spend more time with the actors mm-hmm. um and to have that time to i don't know play i guess so i was thinking oh maybe i should do something like really small scale but then nothing i'm writing is that and i think that's <laughs> what was more of a response to the experience of of like saying goodbye to a, an amazing actor after two days and being like ah oh, wish yeah you could had more time together yeah and so i think for me i'm not looking to go into you know a massive big budget studio film because Mm -hmm. i know that within the within those kinds of shoots um you know as a director you're you're gonna have less creative control because of the nature of the machine behind those sorts of films and i i certainly want the next film i make to you know continue in me kind of saying what who i am as a filmmaker and mm-hmm. developing um in that sense and and exploring things that are probably a bit off kilter and and strange and so it would be great to get a bit bigger but not you know it, it's it's like it all has to come down to the idea
0: basically yeah
1: yeah. who knows because there's some things i'm developing that i'm like yeah that's not simple that's like epic (laughs) and then there's other stuff i'm like how do you do that in camera but that would be amazing you know so it, it, it depends which one went first but um i'm like i fall in love with an idea and then it's just about that really um
0: yeah yeah. Yeah, I find that my problem is that a lot of the storytelling that I like requires things to be bigger. Like the idea of being confined to one location and doing like a couple of actors in one spot just so that some producers can only spend a couple million and make, you know, 10 times mm-hmm. that amount on it just drives me crazy. So it's like does this really have to happen in one fucking house? How many of these movies <laughs> do we have to see where it's two people in one fucking house? Can I have four or five more locations please? Can I make this into a world? And so that's always been my issue because, you know, obviously the team behind me is always like self-contained. Like I hear that all the time, self-contained. And I go, all I hear is you saying, I don't want to spend money. That's all I hear from you. (laughs) Um, But it's it's interesting because yesterday when we came out of the theater, we were at the Alamo downtown Los Angeles and we came out of the theater and we're in the parking lot and we hear automatic gunfire. So we hear gun shooting that's in downtown LA. And I was like, for a hot second, I'm like, whoa, is there robbery? Is there terrorist activity? And I went, no, we're in fucking Hollywood, dude. So I walked around the corner and it was a massive action shoot. So it was this big action shoot. I think it's like Anton Fuqua's new stuff. Big, big thing. And we snuck on set essentially, because it was so big that you can just sort of walk on set And I was just watching. And it was fascinating to be a director watching one of these big things and looking at all these little teams. And it was interesting to watch like the grip department, like the camera department needed a uh, power cable. So two guys had to unravel a power cable and a third guy had to manage them, plugging it in and walking it over to this thing. And I'm like, this is is what big movies are. This is it. It's this slow. And we were there for an hour and a half and I think they got two shots of a guy getting shot in the face on a staircase uh, covered with four cameras and it took him an hour and a half to do like two shots Wow! and i'm sweating watching yeah. it and i said to my girlfriend i go all i can imagine is being in the edit room <laughs> and going there's yeah. only two clips <laughs> from, from yeah, that yeah. hour and a half so it's it's definitely a huge difference from what you and i do which is the run and gun get it quick and and make it beautiful and be immersed in it. And that transition into that bigger realm is, I don't want to say it's scary, but it's just a whole different mind process, whole different system and a whole whole different level of patience that is required from us to
1: do that. Yeah. I think patience is a thing for everyone on a film set, isn't it? Like, (laughs) you know, it it, it is about that. It's funny because I remember when I was a student, film student, and I, Went to Camera Image, a cinematography um, festival It was in Uj uh, in Poland at the time. Cool. And Oliver Stone had a film there, and I sat and, like, there was like this talk with Oliver Stone and his DP. Uh, I can't remember what film it was, but it was a massive, like, epic, uh, epic film. And, and he was saying, like, in your head as a film team, you're like, oh my god, when you get to that point, you've got everything you need, yeah, you know, yeah. and it's all gonna go like clockwork and he sat there and said there's never enough time you know it doesn't you get more money but you've got more you know things to slow you down or you're working with an elephant on set or you know you've got like a crowd (laughs) of two thousand you know extras or whatever and and I remember that really landing with me and thinking yeah actually it's never going to change like you'll always have the same problems in terms of the thing the challenges you face as a filmmaker which are you know always caused by time and money um they won't go away no matter how big you get but i i'd i think you know i'd probably quite like to do something that's like massive like that i don't know Mm -hmm. i'd probably quite enjoy it yeah um, me too working on something on something huge it just would have to be about it it being the idea Idea. It's always about you know you spend such a long time with a film you're creating, and I definitely this landed more and more when I was making Sensor. Like if you don't love the idea, yeah. If you know you go on such a long journey with the project, um, and I was so in love with Sensor, and I still am so in love with it. But you know that it's a, like we've talked about. There's so many ups and downs all the way along the way. Um, if you don't feel 100% passionate about it and you're working all you know the hours of the day on this and you're not getting to spend time with your friends and family and you're <laughs> exhausted and everything, yeah. then you might start to resent that project. So I think for me, it's always like, yeah, I'd love to have a massive crew and a big set and a, loads of money, but <laughs> as long as I love the idea.
0: <laughs> well, and... There's something really comforting in knowing that it is the same on both levels. Like the the stuff yeah. that we go through on our smaller pieces is the same thing. So if we're at least I felt this way, like if I learned how to control my anxieties towards this thing and and work on my patience and work on my skill at this level, it's still useful for the larger level almost necessary for the larger level to be able to come in there and go like, guys, I know that this is, I know that there's like a line, like this fucking set that we were on. There's a line of like 50 extra sitting in cars and there's a helicopter and there's all this other stuff, but this isn't as hard as it was on my short film when I had to make it all myself. (laughs) Like there's something really comforting about that. And it took me a while to get there. And I think it was on the set of one of my films where I had a panic day had a shit day. And I went home and I was like, fuck. And I was beating myself up about it. And I was just watching behind the scenes clips of all these other directors I respected. And they all, they were all like, that's the job. The job is processing your shit days. And, and this is what being a director is about. And we do this on all of our films. And, and, and to hear that, I was like, okay, so this isn't me doing a shitty job. This is the job. And so, okay, yeah. that's, that's all right. All right. I, I can handle this. Okay, cool. And it was yeah. a real great awakening for me. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I, love I remember it. one of my, um, I, I had lots of chats before making sense. with other directors who've made features or multiple features and one of those people said one of the bits of advice I was given was like, you know, if you feel that scene didn't go exactly how it was in your head, you just have to, Put that to one side and remember you've got like four more scenes to shoot that day. Just <laughs> try not to carry any disappointment or anxiety around into the next scene if you can and like let it go. And then, we, and that was really helpful just to not be like going into the next scene feeling stressed if, you know, if something had changed in the last scene or you maybe had to drop a shot that you, you right. wish you got. It's like you'll figure it out there's always a way to figure it out. And, and and it's remembering that, particularly on a first feature, I think, because it, it feels so, um, you know, you, I think with a first feature you can feel like, oh my God, if this isn't perfect, I'm never going to get to make another film. Uh, I think that, you know, you see all the statistics for like filmmakers who get to go from a first feature to a second feature and it can be a little bit scary because you don't want to be the person that, doesn't want to get that nobody wants to fund Mm -hmm, next time mm -hmm. so you can feel like there's a lot of pressure on your shoulders or responsibility to yourself as a as a director um and so it's important to I guess like not carry that around you all the time um so I was trying to do that but I did have a really annoying quote rattling around my head when I was making my first feature which was david fincher once said take all of the responsibility because you're going to get all of the blame yes (laughs) Yes. (laughs) and i wrote it down in my notebook at the front of my directing notebook and i was like why did i write that down it's not helpful (laughs) to be thinking that the whole way through but it's it's true though it's the thing of like if you make a great film as a director everybody can stand around and say this was our film we all made this together if you made a shitty film yeah everybody else can be like ah that was it was them <laughs> it was the director's fault 100%. and so you do you know you are the one carrying the responsibility for the storytelling and 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 that can it, i think you know again i i wish that i hadn't had that rattling around in my head because i didn't need it to be there but i don't, I don't... know whatever whatever i did it seemed to it seems to have worked out all right so um <laughs> yeah. maybe i shouldn't you know
0: change anything, so. yeah. Well, Fincher's like a narcissist, so
1: I don't think you should be <laughs> yeah. taking his
0: advice going into it. But, um, the other thing I learned while I was doing commercials and stuff for so long, and uh, mu- like I've talked about it on the show in the past, where I've like being a younger director, I had flip outs on set and seeing how it affects everybody, and I was I had to learn from that. Like, um, there's something strong and powerful about the experience itself, and being somebody that. Everybody knows that we're in the most stressful situation possible. It's like the white water rafting of, of a job. You know, we're constantly mm. fighting this thing. But there's something to be said as we work with producers and we work with crew and talent and all these folks about being inspiring to those people around you and being someone that people want to be around. Mm. Um, and I learned that uh, hanging out on the set of the Farley Brothers movies, the, the the guys that did like something about Mary and all those movies, um, mm. they. You know for quite some time we're making movies that really weren't doing well in the box office and i never understood how they kept making films there was a period of time before peter won the oscar for what green book or whatever um where they were just making movies that were flopping and it was like how how do these guys keep getting money and then being on their sets i understood that they were such wonderful people to work with they were so incredibly collaborative they took care of folks they were fun to be with for producers and that ended up becoming a real important part of my job for me where it's like, yes, this is incredibly stressful. Yes, every ounce of my life brought me to this moment and if I fuck it up, I'm never going to forgive myself. But also, it's about the people that I'm working with. And if it's a fun set for folks, and even if the movie doesn't end up being a great film, but it's a great experience, you're going to get hired again. Mm. And so, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I th- that was a big eye-opening experience for me, you know?
1: yeah. No, totally. I mean, I I definitely think um, as the director, you're the the person steering the ship, and people are looking to you to be a leader, I guess, and also set a tone on set in terms of how you're all treating one another. And I think, I mean, there's a lot of conversation going on over here in the UK around you know how people are treated on film sets, mm-hmm. and, um, I have the attitude that no matter what stress you're under in your job, that you treat other people with respect and um, and try to enjoy it, like you say, because, uh, yeah, it should be an enjoyable... I mean, we're not doing brain surgery, are we? We're like, it's not life or death. It's storytelling. And, yeah, you might have lots of, you know pressure from yourself creatively or you might have a big budget behind you or a medium-sized budget or a small budget behind you that you don't want to like lose and not have anything to show for that but ultimately you need to um all be treating each other well and um and I think the more fun you have or the more people feel like they're contributing something that's important to a story the more the more you get out of your collaborators Mm -hmm. i guess that's what i mean about when i'm working with actors like you have to let them in it it can't be just you saying this is how this is the character and you have to do this they're they're not robots they're coming as creators themselves and so you know giving a little bit of that to away to your collaborators and letting them come in with their ideas and and showing appreciation for that Mm -hmm. i think means that those people enjoy being there and they can see that they're, um, they're, they're putting something into the process that's going to come out. It's rewarding for everybody. So I definitely uh, live by that as much as is possible. And, you know, I think they have to be a bit of a poker face on set as a director <laughs> and try not to... Especially with actors, you know, there might be something going on in the background technically that it's really stressing you out and you're like, like the light not working or like mm-hmm. whatever it is that you just have to not let that seep into your cast and have them be worrying about that. You're like trying, and your producer is hopefully doing that for you. They might be having some issue with a financier or something else. Hopefully they're, you know, you're basically trying to create a space where you can be creative. Yeah. Um, and, and, and yeah, and yeah, that's, that's a hundred percent what what i'm trying to do when i'm on set
0: yeah it's just yeah 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 i agree with you and when you find it then the, those moments that i've had on set they're just so beautiful and when when you and, and oftentimes it's like it's like being in the set like the eye of a hurricane where all of a sudden like the wind's blowing around you and then all of a, it just gets real fucking quiet and you just look around for me and it's just like this is what i want this is where i want to be every day it's like right here yeah you know, right yeah. here. And then the the second wall of, of wind hit you in the face and you're like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. um, well, look, this has been fantastic. I've had so much fun yeah. talking to you about filmmaking. Um, yeah. I can. Yeah,
1: thanks for inviting me. It's so great. It's lovely to chat to you. Yeah.
0: No, this has been wonderful. And I, I cannot wait to see Censor. I'm going to see it in the theater because I want that theater sure. experience. Uh, and, uh, I have nothing but sympathy for you because you haven't been able to see it with an audience yet. So no. hopefully that happens yeah. Um, yeah. because I love that. That's why we do it is to sit in the yeah. room, especially scaring people is to sit in the room. I always cackle like an older brother when people jump at my stuff. I'm like, <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> you know? I know. I remember the first time I heard someone scream in the audience at one of my films and, uh, and it was just like the most thrilling experience ever, but it's been cool though. People have been, you know, even though I haven't managed to see it with people, I've been getting a lot of love online from people who have seen it. Like one guy messaged me saying he went to see it three times the wow. weekend. That's awesome. <laughs> and I was like, that's a compliment. I love that. That he was. Like, I got something. I got something else out of it every time. And oh. I'm so happy because I always wanted it to be a film that people could go back and rewatch and see new things in. Um, so that, that, the idea that people are actually doing that on the opening weekend in the States is really cool.
0: That's it. Great episode, another great episode in the can. Hard working for you guys. Uh, got up early today. Last night was a tough one. Ugh, I don't know what happened. I it started out great. I went to sleep pretty early, right? And then I ended up, you know, you're in the in your fucking forties, so you're waking up to piss like two or three times a night. So I woke up for my first round at like 1.30 and uh, I made the mistake. See, I don't know if you guys feel the same way or maybe you guys aren't there yet, but for me, I have to keep myself in this dazed mindset as I make my way down a dark hallway into the bathroom, lift the toilet seat and shoot off into the darkness, hoping I'm not going to hit anything but water because I don't want to think about anything. As soon as I get that fucking brain of mine running, I can't get back to sleep. So you try to stay in this haze. I was doing a pretty good job. I hit the water, didn't hit the rim, flushed the toilet, walked over in the darkness, reached and washed my hands in the sink. And as I was leaving the bathroom, I went, I wonder how I'm gonna shoot this thing. Then I was fucked. I asked myself as I headed, headed down the hallway, how am I gonna do this? And then I started to come up with ideas. So then I started to run through ideas. Then I climbed in the bed, put in my earplugs again. am laying there in bed, and I'm like, "Wouldn't it be cool? Why don't I ask this guy to help me on that?" No, 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 no. And I started fucking running through scenarios. And then it's two thirty a.m. and it's two thirty a.m. and I'm like, "Fuck! Stop thinking about this. Stop thinking about these scenarios. Stop thinking about this stuff. Uh, go to sleep. Go to sleep. Go to sleep. Go to sleep." Now it's three thirty a.m. and at three thirty a.m. Luckily, my body goes, dude, you don't know what you're doing with your shit. We're going to shut it down. And I passed the fuck out. And I was up early this morning to do today's episode. So I was up about mm, 730. So you're catching Mike with four hours of sleep. That's what this voice is. That's what this is. Uh, but I did a pretty good job, I think, today. I disguised the fact that uh, my brain uh, can't uh, get the shit out of my mouth right. <laughs> And I really enjoyed chatting with Prano. She's super cool, very giving, uh, very down to earth. Um, I can't I just feel like we'd be pals. Uh, and I uh, hope you guys feel the same way. It's so nice to meet these other filmmakers. And the other day I was thinking about it. It's like, wow, this is really special what this show does for us and what does for me, where I get to meet the Sam Rainey's, I get to meet these folks as they're doing it. I really love that stuff. And lately I've been heavily focused on first time directors and I've been sort of digging into these trailers and these things that I see and I go, this is going to change the business. These people are going to change the genre. And I'm fucking excited to meet these folks and hang out with these people. And I hope you guys are too. And if you guys have ideas, like if there's so much content coming out, so if you guys have seen a trailer, if you've heard of a filmmaker and you're like Mike, this person is on the verge of being amazing. Send them to me. Go to my Instagram account at Mike Petchy. Send me suggestions for the show. Tell me who we should get on the show. Who do you want me to talk to? You can either do it at, at Mike Petchy on Instagram or our podcast account, which is in love with the process Pod. That is In Love With The Process, P-O-D, on Instagram. Send me your suggestions and I will reach out to these folks and uh, we'll have a conversation. We'll have some beers, right? Um, wh- wh- One of the things I wanted to expand on a bit more, and I brought it up in the episode slightly, um, was that uh, that set that I walked on. So Gene and I were coming out of... The Alamo and like I said we heard gunfire like automatic gunfire and there's that hot beat because I don't know if you guys heard the episodes from way back in the day but I used to live in Watertown back in Boston and that's where they caught the terrorists remember the marathon bomber and all that stuff that happened in my neighborhood and so when you start to hear that stuff automatically your head goes like, oh, fuck, this is like some sort of like terrorist attack thing. This is something that's big that's happening. And so then uh, as I walked to my car in the parking garage, I saw the LA skyline because we're in downtown Los Angeles. And I went, oh, (laughs) dumbass, we're in LA. That's a fucking action movie. There's something shooting. And uh, we looked off the top ledge of the parking garage and we saw smoke. And of course there was a video village tent and a bunch of like uh, vest wearing, mask wearing ants sort of moving their way around it and we went fuck there's a movie happening down there let's go take a look and uh, we went down snuck our way past the cones and walked into this set so it was probably like two, three, four blocks and uh, it, it, it begins to be surreal this is what I love about film sets is that Especially in this environment, it looks like it's a regular thing, but it's not. And as we're walking down the street, there's a, a whole street of cars. And it looks like there's a bunch of cars sort of sitting and waiting for the light to change. There's probably 40, 40 cars there. But there's something off about it. Everybody in those vehicles, they're all on their phones. Like all of them. Each and every one of them. It's almost like robots. You look down the line, and they're all on their cell phones. And you're like, wow, this is a long light. And then something else is weird. All of their cars are just too clean. They're all perfectly clean cars. And then wonderfully color, like, uh, wonderfully conformed by color. And you're like, oh, these are extras. These are people waiting. These are people waiting to drive the cars through this scene. There were two or three blocks of this because it was at an intersection. And as we make our way further down the intersection towards the smoke, there is a Uh, a cargo van that has had the side of it blown off right and it's all blown out and it's charred and you're like that's cool that's fascinating and as we continue down there we start to see uh talent people wearing SWAT gear people wearing uh, bulletproof vests it was like oh we're on a set what fucking movie are we on so then you're just running through these scenarios in your head because I know a bunch of the folks out here. And I'm like, is this still Michael Bay? Because I know he's been shooting here. He's got a big movie that I've read the script for, by the way. I shouldn't say that, but I have. He's got a big movie that's coming out. I wonder if he's doing leftovers. But it's been he's been shooting that for too long. It can't be Michael Bay. Maybe it is. And so then we start looking around for the actors that we know that are in that Michael Bay piece, seeing if it is them. And then I start looking around. Uh, looking at crew positions because it's so crazy being a director that sort of walks in and you're in the behind the scenes. I'm looking around going, I think that's the DP. I think that's the AD. And the way these people are moving, that's talent, but that's not talent. I think that's stunt double talent. Interesting. So who's that look like? Who's that guy look like? He looks like Chris Pratt. Hmm. He looks like a Chris Pratt dude. And who's this guy coming down here? with the head half blown off that's fascinating he looks like what's his name who was boomerang and fucking uh, suicide squad yeah, that's who that fucking guy is that's interesting so then you start doing the math and you're watching these folks i see a chair so like there's a there's that guy who rolls around the fucking director's chairs that all have their names on the back of the chairs i'm like ah david Ayer's name is on that that's interesting okay and so we we sort of nestle ourselves in Sneak in amongst the regulars. And uh, we watched this scene happen. And uh, it was interesting. It was fascinating to see on a scale that was this big. And I think it's for like a big Amazon show. I think it's for that show, Terminal List, that's coming out. I think that's what it is. Um, and so we just sit there and we watch. And uh, I start to watch what it's like to see the crew working at this tier. Because this is a larger tier production. So this is a bigger union tier. I start looking around and I'm like... Looking at the slow process that this giant beast takes. It's like, what the fuck? And I'm watching like... Camera department call for Stinger. Right? For those of you who don't know what a Stinger is. It's an extension cord. So they call for a Stinger. And so two guys from the electrics department go over and they pick up probably a 25 foot extension cord. And I watch the two of them unravel it together on the street, slowly unroll it, spread it out. And as they go to plug it in, a third guy walks over who is their supervisor. And he says something like, okay, everybody freeze. (laughs) Okay, freeze. All right, Uh, so before you do this, Camera department needs a cable. The other guy goes, yes, we know. This cable is for camera department. He goes, excellent. Let's bring that to camera department. And then I watched three guys run a fucking power cable to camera department. Now, I'm not dogging on it. I'm not saying that that isn't necessary. I'm not saying that those three guys probably weren't busting their ass before I even got there to put up lights, to put things together. And then this is just... They're all on deck, so let's all work together. I get that stuff. But it was just the amount of time that it took to get that one fucking power cable over to the camera department that I realized that when you get into this larger tier of filmmaking, it's a game of patience. Because a lot of us that are listening to the show, I know I come from it. Prano and I talked about it a bunch. We're used to doing everything on our own. We're used to running around and making things happen. We're used to just grabbing that cable, plugging it in, and fucking shooting that thing out. And then when you get at this larger tier, it's a slower beast. Now, I was pointing out the one ridiculous thing, but the other thing that I found fascinating was how do you take about 80 cars that all have to move through this place at the same time while there's a giant pickup truck that is fascinatingly painted in a specific color that obviously doesn't come out of the factory. And the color of the truck also matches the color of the hero's outfit, which was interesting. Watching this truck drive while pursued by four police trucks through all of this traffic for the shot. And then they were covering this scene with about four cameras. And they were, for those, for those nerds out there, they're like, what are you shooting on? What were they doing? Okay. So everything was being shot on Alexa's. They had a handful of Alexa minis. Uh, and they had some, I think they were airy anamorphics strapped to the front of them. So they had a bunch of Anamorphics strapped to the front of them. They had two camera coverage shooting in one direction, two camera coverage on long lenses, shooting from another direction. And they also had a drone flying through the sequence. And we positioned ourselves behind one of the monitors, which is really fucking fascinating. And so we watch these guys do all of this shit for a close up of a guy who is the dude, I forget his name, the actor's name, but he's Boomerang. I think it's the guy who's Boomerang in uh, Jesus Christ, Michael, Four Hours of Sleep, Suicide Squad. He's laying on the steps, cameras handheld, walks up to him as he looks up, he says something and stuntman's hand reaches by with a gun, blows his face open, okay? So that happens. So we watched them do that twice. So that happens two two times, and then the reset for the next shot happens, and that reset takes an hour and change, okay? So then I watched them shoot the next sequence, which was the trucks chasing the truck through all these different cars, Um, and they did two takes of that. The whole thing was, two hours, something like that for two setups. And each setup had multiple cameras in it, but you know, multiple camera coverage, it's either good or it's not good. Half the time it's like, well, it's going to take two hours. So let's set up a bunch of cameras. So I saw some of those other shots and it's like, yeah, they kind of throw away shots. So the anxiety of me as a filmmaker, is, I'm looking at this going like, fuck, what's my head up been look like after these two hours? I just, I got like two setups out of those two hours. And I looked around at everybody and the, the professionalism was stunning to see. The ability that these folks had to maneuver all these dangerous elements, multiple cars, people that are sitting in their cars all day, all on their fucking phones, and suddenly having to go into action mode and be aware of what's happening. The AD department was something to look at, watching them sort of filter out the insane John Carpenter-esque zombie homeless people that would walk onto the set. There's this one guy in flip-flops who was like, I know Warner Brothers. (laughs) Watching the poor AD who's just like, can you fucking get this person out of here? And he's like, I'm good friends with Warner. She's like, I've been here since 5 a.m. Can you please just get him off the set? It's fascinating. It was fun to watch. It was very inspiring to see and to see the difference between what we do on the smaller scale to the larger scale. And then I think the one thing that I got from today's episode with Prano is that it's nice to hear that the skills that we need to get through our nightmare small films are the same skills that you're going to need to get through those slow-moving, battleship, epic, blockbuster movies. Pretty cool, right? One of the cool things about living in Los Angeles is that I literally stepped out of the movie theater into a movie. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening to the show. I hope you guys enjoy it. I love you guys. Um, Lots of new episodes on the way. And uh, that's it, man. I'm barely making it through this on four hours of sleep. So you know the deal. I will see you next Tuesday with hopefully more sleep and a better ability to make words out of my thoughts.